This evening's readings from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verses 1 to 17. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moved about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before ye. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now the title you'll see for this sermon I take from the commentary by John Woodhouse on 2 Samuel, the title, The Most Important Words in the World. So big stuff. So listen up. Let's pray for God's help. Our Father, if these are indeed the most important words in the world or amongst them in Scripture, we pray, Lord God, that we would not be found asleep, but listening keenly, listening keenly for your voice to obey these words, to marvel at them, to grasp and to understand them for your glory and for our good. For Christ's sake. Amen. Now, there are famous speeches we can all recall in history. Who would be up there? Churchill, I guess. JFK, Martin Luther, Mandela. Great speeches, but at their very best, and they are the very best. They are words of human wisdom, human courage, human optimism, and human resolve. What about God's best speeches in the Bible or in history? Words that shape the history of the world, words that shape eternity, words that are being fulfilled as we sit here, words uttered promises thousands of years ago. 
Let me just point you to two of these big speeches. Number one, what God said to Abraham recorded in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a mighty nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and you through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is a big speech. Just compare it to the best of human speeches. God is saying, Abraham, go and I will make through you a nation that will cover all of the earth of my people. And 2 Samuel 7 is right up there with Genesis 12 as one of the great speeches of God in the Bible. The book of 2 Samuel is the reign of King David, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. David reigned over Israel, the people of God, for 40 years. He was Israel's greatest king. 2 Samuel 7 is well on in David's rule, maybe 30 years. David is firmly established as God's king. This is a big moment in history. Why? Because God's chosen king is in Jerusalem, the city of God, and the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, the city of God. The king and the priest in the same city. The king and the place where the once a year atoning sacrifice with sin was made in Jerusalem. And there is peace. Chapter 7, verse 1 refers to rest. That's a spiritual word for peace, stability. It echoes creation. God rested from his labors. It's a big moment. It's like we're at the summit of a mountain. Now, please have 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17 open in front of you. And use the service sheet simply because I've laid the passage out that mirrors the intended structure from the writer, I think. See if you'll agree with me. Now, what David wanted to do at this big moment, what was he thinking, is in verses 1 to 3, the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. The king said to the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said, Go, do what is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We looked at this in detail last week. David had a desire to do something for God's glory. And I think, too, David had a sense that God's purposes and God's promises had come to fulfillment. It was a kind of zenith in David's heart. The mountaintop had been reached. The king and the ark in the city, rest, stability. All authority had been given to David over the enemies of God. David wanted to do this for God's glory, sensing that a big moment had come, that God's purposes had been fulfilled, but things were about to get a lot bigger. The clouds were about to clear and David was about to see 
a mountain range ahead of him, and a mighty mountain at the end. Now, the Lord's response to David's decision to build a temple, a house for the ark, is recorded in verses 4 to 17, and you'll see it laid out on the sheet with two bookends, verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, go and tell David, verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So two bookends in response to what David wanted to do that contain three statements. How do we know there are three? Well, each one is begun with the words, you'll see them there, thus says the Lord. Then verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 11b, the Lord declares to you. Three statements, three answers, if you like, to David's desire to build a house for the Lord and to mark this moment that God's purposes had been fulfilled. Statement one, verses 5b to 7, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel. In all places where I have moved with all the people, did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd all my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? My paraphrase to that, David, it's not for you to make this decision. It's not for you to decide when the temple will be built. That's the first answer. We looked at it last week. Second answer, statement two, verses eight to 11. Now, therefore, God kind of takes David by the shoulders. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, David, I took you from the pastures. Remember, I took you from your father's fields from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you, David, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And that's where we are now, David, right now. And now God directs David's mind to David's future. I will make for you, David, will make future a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. In other words, you've not arrived. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. I thought you had, David would be thinking. God says, no, David, there is a future. Now my paraphrase for verses eight to 11a would be something like this, David, as you look back on your life, I have been with you, but I'm not done yet. There's more I intend to do for and through you, David. Listen to me. Now, if that sounds like God's promise to Abraham, it is meant to. God is talking about a place, peace and rest. And the point of this is we've got to have God's speech to Abraham in our ears and then his speech to David in our ears because they kind of weave together as two golden threads in the Bible. God's promise to Abraham is not being set aside. It is being amplified with the addition of a king and a kingdom as part of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, statement three. 
11b to 16. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember, David had wanted to build the Lord a house. This is a pun, a house. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. My paraphrase, David, you wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build a dynasty. The house of David. A dynasty from your offspring, David. He shall, verse 13, build a house for my name. He is Solomon, his son. He shall build a house for my name. The house there is the temple. Solomon shall build a house for my name. David goes, oh, so he gets to build it. And that's the last mention of the temple until long ahead into Samuel. And I, verse 13b, will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now just take a highlighter pen and highlight the words, forever. Gosh. I mean, all that David had known was Saul, his predecessor, whose kingdom did not last even to his son, Jonathan. And God is saying to David here, you want to build me a house, David, I'm going to build a dynasty through your name, and I'm going to build a kingdom through your name that is going to go on forever. Solomon, yeah, he's going to build a temple, but your kingdom is going to go on forever. I will be to him a father, verse 14, and he shall be to me a son. One of the texts in the Old Testament quoted right through the Bible, we'll come back to it. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. In other words, the kings that follow in your line, David, when they mess up, I'll discipline them. But my steadfast love, verse 15, will not depart from them as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your kingdom, David, will never end. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, my paraphrase of verses 13 through 16. I'm going to build a dynasty from your offspring, David, and I don't just mean your son Solomon and his kingdom. I'm not going to stop there. The dynasty I'm going to build from you, David, will last forever. That's massive stuff. And again, it sounds like God's promise to Abraham. It's meant to. It's the same promise, first made to Abraham, but now layered with the Davidic king promise, expressed in such a way that the promise to Abraham now involves a king and a kingdom. It's the same promise, though. How can you have a king that lives forever or a kingdom that endures forever? There are only two ways that can happen. Number one, that there is an eternal succession of Davidic kings. One after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Or there will come a time when there is a king who never dies. Now tuck that thought away. And let's slow down and hear some words that are very important. Verse 14. Remember, it is God who is speaking. God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And my paraphrase of that is something like this. The stability of this eternal kingdom will be secured by my relationship to the king whom I will call my son. 
So the king is the son of God. Now, when we hear the word son, we think of paternity and genetics. Stick your hand up in the building and at home. This is about as risky as you get in a Scottish church. Stick your hand up if you do the same job as your parents did. One in the building. My illustration would fall completely flat if everyone put their hand up, but I didn't think you would. In the ancient world, how many hands would be up there? Every hand. Jesus was called son of a carpenter, because that's what he did, because his dad was one. Eventually, he was just called carpenter, the carpenter. And in the ancient world, the word son, and this is the meaning here, has the meaning of a relationship of function or role. No genetics, no paternity involved. But David has no genetic relationship to God. He is God's king and he is called God's son because David has on earth the function of God. He is the emissary of God. He is the mediator for God. He is the ruler over the people of God. He is God's chosen king. That's what God means when he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God means the king will be my representative in the earth. Between me and my people, he will do my job. And that is how David is called the son of God. And that is how Solomon, David's son, is called the son of God. And that is how and why every human king that followed in the Davidic line is called son of God. King performing the function of me on the earth. Now, let's slow down a bit more and answer two questions. One, what happened for the next 1,000 years? That is between the events of 2 Samuel and this promise and the coming of Jesus Christ 1,000 years later. Second question, what did God say for the next 1,000 years? Now, there's a lot that we could say in answer to these questions, but what are the big, big, big principles in relation to this promise? I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. What happened first for the next 1,000 years? Well, let's start right here with King David. David was a great king. He really was the greatest king of Israel. But he messed up. And we're going to see that from a couple of weeks on from now. He's going to mess up. And there are some dark, dark moments. He disobeyed God. And the Lord disciplined him. But God did not reject him as he had rejected Saul. God did not reject the Davidic line. Solomon, David's son, like his father, did great things for God. But he too was disobedient. But God did not reject him. God did not reject the Davidic line. After Solomon, the king divided north and south. The Davidic line was under threat. It carried on in the southern kingdom of Judah, ups and downs, good kings, bad kings, mostly bad kings, the occasional good kings, but God never rejected the Davidic line. The kings were always sons of God. A few centuries later, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, but God never rejected the Davidic line. Successive kings in Judah came and went, some good, some bad. Eventually, in the 6th century, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. 
the city of Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, the 70-year exile, then the return. But not to the glory of the former days, the long centuries that followed, after the last word of the prophet Malachi to Jesus, all through these dark, dark centuries, there was a thread running the Davidic line of kings. Until you get to the New Testament, or zero, between B.C. and A.D., Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, just hear the significance of these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is born in the line of David, the Davidic line, which to us, reading to Samuel, means God kept his promise. It's not that he just was born in that line. God said a thousand years ago that nothing will break that line. And because David was a descendant in lineage from Abraham, Jesus is son of Abraham. And at the end of the genealogy, Jesus is described as son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. And that's the eternal son of God by then. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if that's what happened in the thousand years between David, the events recorded in 2 Samuel and Jesus, this continual line and all manner of stuff was assailed against it, like the Assyrian Empire, like the Babylonian Empire, like a huge amount of disobedience on the part of God's people. But the line was kept. Why? Well, for us. For our salvation. Now, if that's what happened in these a thousand years, what did God say? Well, I want us just to focus on one verse, chapter 7, verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The king as God's son function. My ruler, my king. Starts with David. Let's stand on three stones. That's all. Three stepping stones as we get to the New Testament. Three things God said. Number one, Psalm 2. These words, Psalm 2, verse 7, the king is speaking. I will tell of the decree. The king is speaking of the decree that made him king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 2 Samuel seven fourteen. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 2 Samuel 7 is a very important verse in the Bible because it echoes 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 2, 7, you are my son. Who is Psalm 2 about? David, yes. It may have been David's coronation psalm even, or Solomon's. But it's also about Jesus. How do we know? In Hebrews 1, which is all about the supremacy of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews 1 has two quotes from the Old Testament. Psalm 2, 7, you are my son. And 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. It's Jesus. 
Psalm 2 is about God's king. Now, stepping stone number two, and you need a big stride because we're going to Isaiah 9 in the 8th century, 200 years after David's death. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And son there in Isaiah 9 means human Davidic king, not the son of God as in the eternal son of God, not yet. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, is meant to bring our minds back to Psalm 2 and to Samuel 7. But the next verse blows our minds because this human king in the line of David, and how do we know it's in the line of David? Verse 7 of Isaiah 9 says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he is also this king, this human king is also mighty God. See what's happening? This line of promise, this golden thread that comes through 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, that God's King, God's Messiah will come. All of a sudden, we're hearing that that King is also Almighty God. Human King, eternal God, and that His kingdom will be one of justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And that bit's not happened yet. When Jesus comes again, it will. His kingdom will be a perfect kingdom, a kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness. So stepping stone number two, Isaiah 9, is about God's king, God's human king in the line of David. And God's king is God himself. God's king will live forever. God's kingdom will be forever. God's kingdom will be a perfect kingdom. Isaiah written. So that the people of God, when they went into exile, would not lose confidence and hope in the promises of God. Would you have thought, languishing in the exile, that there was any hope of a Davidic king as the Messiah? Stepping stone number three in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, the central prophecy in the book during the exile, 6th century BC, 200 years after Isaiah. Daniel records, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, was presented, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one, which will not pass away. 500 years before the birth of Christ, 500 years after the death of David. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, Daniel 7 speaks of the coronation of the king, the human Davidic king who is God. Extraordinary. If it does anything, it gives us huge confidence in the coherence of the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible and the 
tenacity of God through history to just bring this golden thread through to Christ. So that's what happened in the thousand years after this promise, this speech to David. And that's what God said in the thousand years until you get to the New Testament. We've already been in Matthew 1.1, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. What about Mark 1? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I think Mark means there the eternal God and the Davidic king both. Mark 1 verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. That's Psalm 2-7, definitely. What's added to it now? With you I am well pleased. That's from the suffering servant song. So he's the king in the line of David. He is eternal God and he is the suffering servant. You see how all the golden threads are being drawn together and woven into this rope that is Christ. Then Jesus begins his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. What kind of kingdom? An eternal kingdom. Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What's in Peter's mind? Almost certainly 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 2 verse 7. Isaiah 9. Ezekiel 34. All of it. No wonder Jesus says, Peter, on this rock, this solid ground, this man, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, where every line of prophecy is fulfilled, no wonder Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And all that from the gospels, Jesus is son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, God's human king a human king that is God himself, the eternal son of God, a human king, God himself, a suffering servant, eternal king over an eternal kingdom, all of it fulfilled in Jesus. When did Jesus become God's eternal king? At what point? When did the eternal kingdom of God begin? Well, in shadow form in David's day, When Jesus was born, to a degree, yes. When Jesus began his public ministry and said the kingdom of God is at hand. But if I had to pick a moment, it would be when Jesus hung on his cross and breathed his last and the temple curtain was ripped, which means there is no more priest needed and the centurion who looked at Jesus dying on the cross said, surely this man was the son of God, Davidic king above his head, king of the Jews, son of God, eternal God, suffering servant. And one more thing to be added, as Jesus hung as a sacrifice for sin and the temple curtain was torn, priest, king, priest, Servant God in one man who is your saviour and mine. Is he to be trusted with your life? Yes. 
human king, eternal God, and high priest. And therefore, in Hebrews, Psalm 2.7, 2 Samuel 7.14 is quoted twice. In Hebrews 1, to make the point that Jesus is supreme over all the angels. And in Hebrews 5, to make the point that Jesus is the forever priest of God. All of it goes back to 2 Samuel 7 and that speech that God made to David that day. Now, this is hard to explain and it needs time and work and effort. So you need to go away and listen again and maybe read John Woodhouse's commentary and I can point you to some really helpful material on the, the theology of kingdom and kingship through the Bible. It just brings the Bible alive. Here's the question with which we finish for two minutes now and a whole talk next week. So what? The so what is in David's prayer. And it's a wonderful answer that David will take us through in his own heart, in his own mind, in his own will next week. Just a wonderful, wonderful answer. And when David answers in his prayer, David's head is down, his heart is bowed. He just cannot believe what he has heard. He thought he was just about to reach the tip of the mountain. And God says this extraordinary stuff to him. And it's even more extraordinary for us, for we live in light of it all. We've seen it all. We've seen the kingdom of God unfold in the world. We just prayed for the robberies. We just spoke about Redeemer. Here we are in Scotland in a church. We are Christians. We are called sons of God. David is humbled. And so will we be and so we are. Humble not in the sense of cast down or broken down, but humbled in the sense of gladly, joyfully praising in humility, humble before our God. Psalm 2, we take the hand of Jesus and kiss the Son. We kiss the Son. Your majesty. So what? Well, the so what is in our heads, and that's why we spent tonight trying to get our heads around this. And as soon as you get your head around it, and it's got to be that way around, then your heart's got to follow. Please don't stop at the head. You've got to go to the heart. But please don't go to the heart without the head. The head to the heart. What's the heart response? Believe in Jesus. Or marvel at him. Or marvel at God. Or marvel at God's purposes. Or marvel at God's word. Not admire it, but just say, gosh, this cannot be anything other than the inspiration of Almighty God. This cannot be anything other than the work of God through human history. It cannot be anything else. How can you not believe this? There was a fellow at the first, fourth, third, eighth service, whatever it was. And he was a committed Catholic who knew Jesus, he said, but he said, gosh, I never knew the Bible said all these things. The Bible came alive today. Believe, marvel, worship, worship, trust, trust, obey, proclaim, pray. What do you pray in light of this passage? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come.
Jesus, come again. And bring that kingdom of righteousness and peace and love where there are no tears or masks or death or crying or pain. But the overriding response is not of the head, not of the heart, but one of humility. That we are part of Jesus' eternal kingdom and that we are called to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. David's prayer, as we'll see next week, effectively says two things. It says, thank you, God, and please, please keep your promise. Let me read a couple of lines of his prayer, and then that'll lead us into prayer. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me safe thus far? David says, Why on earth, God, are you doing this for me? And surely we can sit here and say, Who am I, Lord, that that promise in 2 Samuel 7 has worked itself out in my life because I am part of this kingdom. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and what you say will happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these marvellous, marvellous passages in Scripture that blow our minds, in a sense, as we try to grasp them and grapple them. But there is a simplicity to them. You make promises, and you keep promises. And in your almighty sovereignty, you brought about these promises in the person of Jesus Christ. They're still being fulfilled. But once again, we pledge our loyalty and devotion to the King. And in the words of Sam, to kiss the Son in humility and adoration and affection and love and loyalty. For Jesus' sake. Amen.